back to another episode of the Touch Points podcast put on by East Point Bible Church. This is the fifth episode in a seven-part series titled Right Answers for Wrong Ideas. And the aim of this series is to provide biblical direction and wisdom for where to go and how to answer those who disagree with the truth of God's Word. In this episode, we will focus on the biblical response to the worldview of Islam, one of the fastest-growing religions worldwide and most influential on the global stage. To begin this discussion, uh, we first must look at the history of Islam to better understand its historical and theological roots. History is highly regarded by Muslims, so as discerning and culturally engaging Christians, we should be aware of its influences in our gospel conversations with Muslims. Adherents to Islam believe that the theological values of Islam are the natural religion of humanity. That if left to themselves, people would be Muslim. They would adhere to the basic rudimentary tenets of Islam. That it was the original belief system of Adam and Eve along with the patriarchs. To Muslims, Islam has been around since the beginning of all things, but culminated in the revelation during the life of the prophet Muhammad in the early 7th century AD. Muhammad received revelations from the angel Gabriel at the age of 40 about the one true religion of the one true God, one set against the polytheism that was popular locally, against materialism that was popular locally, and against the immorality that Muhammad saw all around him. Muhammad would continue to claim to receive revelations from God, which would later form the basis for the Quran to be compiled after his death. Because of the cultural conflict between Muhammad's revelations and the local religion, Muhammad and his followers moved from Mecca to Medina in AD uh, 628. Muhammad moved back to Mecca to overthrow the city and purge of its idolatry, and it later became the central area for Muslim worship and a very significant spiritual um, value to Muslims. Two significant things occurred after Muhammad's death. First, the teachings, or literally as the Muslims refer to it, the recitations of Muhammad, were gathered and recorded into the Quran, which is regarded as the only holy book. Secondly, Muhammad's followers divided, though not equally divided, on the idea of successorship to Muhammad as Islam's leader into two main groups, which still exist today. The Sunni Muslims, which believe that successorship should be by the most qualified person being appointed, and the Shiite Muslims, that successorship is based on lineage. And so these are core historical facts uh, that we need to be aware of when interacting and engaging with Muslims. The core Muslim beliefs can be summarized by the five pillars of Islam. Shahada, the confession that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Salat, Muslims pray five times a day. Siyam, during the fasting or fasting during the month of Ramadan, Haji, the pilgrimage to Mecca that if financially capable, a Muslim is required to make once in their lifetime for eight days. And number five, Zakat, which is tithing two and a half percent to the poor and needy of total net worth. Other core values of Islam are that the Quran is the only holy book revealed by Muhammad or to Muhammad by God, that is Allah. Man does not have a sinful nature, but sins because of the temptations around them or the systems around them. 
Eternal life is decided by the judgment of Allah weighing good deeds versus bad deeds. In that major biblical characters, including Jesus, are prophets of Allah that revealed part of his will to the world, but that Muhammad is the last and greatest prophet. Another interesting fact about Islam is that they have an eschatology or a view of end things in the end times that has a lot of similar concepts to the Christian doctrine of premillennialism. Islam believes in a tribulation that will have an anti-Allah power, similar to that of the Antichrist leading people astray. And at the end of this tribulation or judgment period on earth, Isa, or Jesus, will come to earth to destroy the Antichrist or the anti-Allah and his followers, and he will reign on earth for 40 years. In concluding his reign on earth, all life will come to an end, all humanity will be resurrected by Allah into a physical form, and then universal judgment of humanity will take place. And so with all these things in mind about the history of Islam, the basic theological tenets of Islam, where should we direct our conversations in discussing the gospel with Muslims? I believe that there are three main subjects that should be paramount in addressing the gospel and in talking about a theology with Muslims. The nature of God, the person of Jesus, and the requirements of salvation. Muslims reject the Trinity and label it as a polytheistic view of God, meaning that there are multiple gods. Muslims believe that Christians worship three gods, not one. Um, they also don't believe that Jesus is Savior, God, or Lord, but a venerated prophet of Allah. A salvation comes through obedience and conformity to the will of Allah, not through the payment of debt, satisfying God's judgment, and the imputation of needed righteousness. And so with these things in mind, let's begin on discussing the subject that we as Christians must focus on, and that we must explain the oneness of God existing in three distinct persons from Scripture. We must articulate and defend the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, this theological distinction alone from Islam causes a great divide and disagreement between us and Muslims. Despite being obvious and plain from Scripture, the concept of the Trinity cannot be easily explained because it's finite human words trying to grasp and explain the essence of an infinite, transcendent God in his nature. But we have to do our best attempt in explaining who God is because he's revealed to us who he is to be understood and explained and shared with others, even if we can't grasp all of it. And so to begin, uh, the Christian must stand on the clarity of Scripture that all three persons have claim to divinity, but yet all three persons consist of one divine singular essence. Be familiar and be even to be even better it would be to memorize the passages in Scripture that highlight the divinity of the Father, the divinity of the Son, and the divinity of the Spirit, and also the oneness of God. Showing that Scripture is consistent in upholding the reality of the Trinity is imperative in discussions with Muslims. Old Testament passages that allude to the Trinity are incredibly valuable because of the value Muslims place in many Old Testament state, saints and content. Passages such as Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, and Isaiah 6, 8, 
um, speak of God in the plural. God refers to himself as us in all of those four passages. And while these passages do not definitively definitively describe or portray the, tr- the, the Trinity, they do strongly imply it and agree with the more explicit statements that can be found elsewhere in Scripture and in the New Testament. So those Old Testament passages are critical to proving and relying on the consistency of the Trinity all throughout God's Word. For references in the New Testament, uh, consider memorizing or referencing passages like where all three members of the Trinity are seen together, uh, such as the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, 13 through 17, and in Mark chapter 1, 9 through 11, or in the Great Commission, as in Matthew 28, 19, or references to all three persons, such as that in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. A critical focus when talking with Muslims is to make it clear that Jesus identified himself as God. In studying this, I was watching a video on, I could have been an imam, uh, a Muslim leader, arguing that Christ never claimed to be divine, uh, that he only claimed to be sent from God as a man of God. And so that may be an issue you run into where Muslims do not believe that Jesus claimed to be God, that he did not accept worship, that he did not not allow himself to be associated with God as an equal. And so you as a Christian to be prepared to go into the Gospels and show the passages or recite the passages where Jesus clearly makes himself out to be God. Because they will argue he doesn't make himself out to be God, but he was merely a created, finite servant of God. And so we got to appeal to the Gospels as the most accurately recorded record of Jesus's life and words, which this reality you might even have to defend because Muslims believe that God, the Bible has been corrupted throughout centuries. So that's another topic you might have to defend is the reliability of God's word and its trustworthiness. And so some passages to use I would recommend um, when talking to a Muslim about the nature of Christ sharing as a equal but distinct person in the divine essence is passages like John 1, 1 through 3, which speaks of the eternality of the world, of the word being there, creating everything. Uh, John 15, 18, which states that Jesus was making himself out to be equal with God. And because of that, he didn't go to certain areas. Or John 8, 56 through 59, where Jesus claims to be God and eternal, where he says that he is the I am. And in response to that, the Jews around him threatened to stone him because he claims to be with God and be one with God. Uh, You can see in Matthew 28, 9, Jesus receives worship. In Matthew 14, 13, after calming uh, the waves, Jesus receives worship and is called the Son of God. And there are many other passages like this. But those passages are critical um, in rebutting the notion or the assumption that made by many Muslims that Jesus did not make himself out to be God. Now, in terms of salvation, we referenced this earlier. Islam centers around the concept that salvation is attainable through submission to the will of Allah. That a lifestyle of submission, the central idea of the Muslim life, Muslim means submission, and a works lifestyle in alignment with the will of Allah is the only means to experience eternal life to Muslims. And so in your conversations with Muslims, you will find the distinct separation between the understandings of salvation between Islam and Christianity. And so this area requires the Christian to share the whole gospel, to be total, to be holistic, to be comprehensive in explaining the gospel, to explain 
not only what it means to have faith in Christ and to repent of sins, but also the condition of humanity, the nature of God as just and judge, his righteousness, his holiness, and the necessity of Christ for humanity to meet the standard of God's righteousness and holiness. Muslims believe they can be good before God on the basis of what they can do. But as Christians, we must faithfully defend and articulate from Scripture that a proper understanding before God that he is holy and righteous, and that is not attainable by the works of the law or any lifestyle, but only attainable through faith in Christ and what he has done. And so explaining the nature of God and the nature of man accurately is a critical point that the righteousness of God cannot be attained through sinful man or by sinful man or by sinful man. And so Muslims do not believe the sinful nature of man or in the sinful nature of man, that man has an inherent, inherited sinful nature passed on from person to person, but only that man is a product of the system in which they live. In Islam is the system they believe that enables a person to live righteously and thus to meet the standards of Allah. And so we need to show from scripture that sin comes from within and that from the nature of a person, a person is corrupted, that inwardly and internally a person is totally and completely corrupt. Passages like Romans 3, 9 through 12, Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, Ecclesiastes 7, 20, 9, 3, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and other passages like that are excellent reference points. But you also can use real-world examples and logic to get to that point by just observing the reality of the world around us. So after explaining and defending the deity of Christ, the condition of man, and the unattainable standard of God's righteousness— move on to explain that salvation through the work and merit of Christ on the basis of faith alone is the only way to God, is the only means of being made right with God. A great place to start is to go holistically to Romans chapter 3 verse uh, and through chapter 5 to holistically cover the topic of salvation. Um, almost everything is needed in those that chapter and a half of Scripture um, when dealing with the concepts that are familiar and necessary uh, for salvation. Um, you begin with the inability of the law to produce righteousness needed to be saved in chapter 3, verse 19 through 20. Uh, we see, but God has provided his son as the means of being justified in the propitiation for his judgment that can, has been attested from all of God's revelation. We see that in chapter 3, 21 through 31. In that Abraham exemplifies this archetype of salvation, that faith can be credited as righteousness, which foreshadowed that faith in Jesus that was to come in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, 5. And that this salvation in Jesus is provided because of God's unconditional and unmerited love to satisfy what is needed to be made right with him in chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And so referencing passages like this are critical to not only using language relevant and applicable to a Muslim's understanding, but also showing textually, using the textual ed of evidence and using an Old Testament example that is highly regarded by Muslims as the basis for why Christ is necessary and faith is necessary for salvation. And so to conclude this podcast on how to address Muslims, always remember that Muslims need the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like all these other religions that we discussed so far. Muslims need to know the love of God 
that his holiness and his standard is unachievable by our own merit and own performance, and that the provision of Christ makes righteousness before God possible. Don't be caught off guard by what Muslims believe or stumped by their objections to the foundational tenets of the Christian faith. Use what we have discussed in this episode and other resources to be prepared and equipped for their objections and how they will raise them and how you should respond biblically. I hope this has been a benefit for you. I hope this has prepared you, illuminated you through God's word on how you can better be prepared and equipped to have a gospel conversation with a Muslim. Thank you for turning into this episode of Touchpoints. Grace and peace. May God bless.